Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, Rose Eveleth takes us to the future, uh, but like a good kind of future that we might actually want. Bonjour, Anne Friedman. Hola. <laughs> Ten years of friendship. Still can't respond to me in my native tongue. I am. I am hurt. I am hurt. This is just. This is the like recurring language troll of our friendship. Oh my gosh. One day. One day. Um, we're deep in book writing. Hello from Vermont. And occasionally, we're going to be handing the show over to some of our faves. Which is something we love to do occasionally. A few times a year, we invite a podcaster who we love to do a takeover of our show and let you all listen to what their show is about. And this week, we have the incredible Rose Eveleth. Rose's podcast is called Flash Forward. You can listen to it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It is great. Uh, here she is on our show this week. picture a futurist, you're probably picturing a white guy, maybe with glasses, probably wearing like a black t-shirt and jeans, standing on a TED Talk stage. How close am I? And you can't really be blamed for picturing this dude when someone says futurist, because these are the dudes who constantly claim that title and get up on those stages and talk about the future as if they alone know what is coming. But the future is not exclusively the domain of rich white guys who want to inject younger people's blood into their bodies to live forever, which is a real thing that Peter Thiel wants to do. Just FYI. In fact, futurism is all around us. You are being pitched futures all the time. Every time you see an advertisement or some spawn con on Instagram, you're being pitched a future in which you own that toothbrush or bralette and your life is so much better because of it. Every politician's platform is describing a future, one where they will make changes and shape the world into their vision of tomorrow. Lobbyist groups from Planned Parenthood to the NRA are all pitching futures, some more desirable than others. What I'm trying to say is that futures are all around us, and it's worth being able to identify them, ask questions about them, and ultimately create them. And that is where Flash Forward comes in. Flash Forward is a show about futurism that goes beyond these tech dudes. What I do every episode is present scenarios, some of them likely, some of them not so much, and try to find the hidden and surprising angles behind those futures. What would the warranty on a sex robot look like? What kinds of fashion items will become popular when climate change gets worse? What would neonatal care look like on a spaceship? And I try to answer those questions in two ways. The show always starts with an audio drama, a little fictional scene that drops you into the world we're exploring that day and considers how this future might impact real people on the ground. 
Then I pull us back to the present and talk to real experts about all the curious ways that future might unravel. So I rounded up some of my favorite examples from Flash Forward that I thought CYG listeners might be interested in to show you what I mean by futurism. Take universal basic income. Regular listeners may remember an episode last year where Amina talked to Annie Lowry, the author of Give People Money, about this. And most of the time, these days at least, you hear about universal basic income in the context of automation and tech companies who are like, hey, we have to do UBI because when our amazing technology puts people out of jobs, people are still going to need money to buy iPhones and toasters that connect to your shoelaces or whatever dumb thing that we've invented that probably also spies on you. But there are people working on basic income who are not those dudes, and they're actually doing it right now in communities around the world. So on Flash Forward's episode about giving people money, I talked to Aisha Niandoro, CEO of Springboard to Opportunity, who is working to lift up Black women in Jackson, Mississippi, via a basic income project. Here's Aisha. I never think about automation in a robots. I, ne- I mean, I never do. I never think about automation in a robots coming until I'm in, unless I'm in California, because then it's so it's like, oh my God, they're here now. Um, and I do get that they are coming, but our piece and what we see every day is that there is extreme poverty right now, and we need to address those inequalities right now. What is going to happen in this pilot program is that we are going to give $1,000 a month to 16 extremely low-income African-American women, and we are going to let them do whatever the hell they want to with their money. And the crowd goes, wow, and we're all like, woo! (laughs) That is what we're going to do, and we're going to watch what happens, and we're going to trust that these women know what it is that they need for themselves and their families, and that they are actually going to go do those things that they need. Um, Yeah, they're going to actually go do those things that they need to actually achieve the goals that they are trying to achieve and the dreams that they have for themselves. The more people who have the opportunity to make their dreams reality, the better the future will be. Universal basic income is beloved by softies like me everywhere, but not all futures are quite so warm and fuzzy. Consider genetic editing. You might have heard that last year two quote-unquote designer babies were born in China. These two babies were the first humans ever born whose genes had been edited with a technique called CRISPR. CRISPR is basically just a really easy way to slice up genes and paste them wherever you want. So think of doing like a scrapbook collage, except instead of making memories, you're making a person who will have memories. And gene editing has all sorts of really interesting and cool applications. On the Flash Forward episode about CRISPR, I talked to someone who has a degenerative eye disease. CRISPR could cure both her and her father of this condition and save their eyesight, which is very cool. But often, the conversations around this technology center around some really problematic assumptions about bodies, disease, and disability. People say things like, we're going to eliminate disabled people, which actually living disabled people have some feelings about. Here's a clip from that episode. You know, in a lot of the reporting around human genome modification, did about the, you know, the magical, powerful, you know, possibilities of CRISPR as a technique. A lot of that uh, conversation is about the removal of suffering and pain and disease. So, whenever I hear stuff like that, I'm like, you know, they, 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 they're talking about 
people like me, people that are in my community. This is Alice Wong, the founder and director of an organization called Disability Visibility. For the listeners out there, I'm somebody who's a full-time wheelchair user. I rely on personal assistance for almost every aspect of my you know, daily activities. I, for those of you who are listening to the sound of my voice, I'm wearing a mask over my nose that's attached to a ventilator. So people look at me and think, oh my God, this person is just, you know, I cannot imagine living like that. You know, these are the kind of pervasive attitudes uh, that are ableist. For Alice, there is a huge difference between someone choosing to undergo a CRISPR-derived therapy to stop her eye yolks from scrambling and scientists deciding what kinds of bodies are and are not desirable at the embryo stage. For people to elect to do this to their own bodies, hey, more power to you, you know? I think that's, that's a choice that everybody hopefully would get to make for themselves if it is available. But I do think that, you know, the kind of preemptive delimitation or alteration of surgeries are based on fear. They're based on the imagination of non-disabled people of what living with a disability is like. So I think that to me is the difference. Often, people like Alice are not included in conversations about the future of genetic editing. And leaving certain bodies out of these conversations is one of the reasons we mistrust the idea of futurism in general. Take, for example, all the excitement about human space travel. If you believe certain futurists, we will be living in space colonies in no time. We'll send humans to Mars and create settlements there and soon have whole generations living beyond Earth's atmosphere. But there's actually very little research on some key things, like can we actually have babies in space? We literally might not be able to. Some research suggests that because of the way microgravity and radiation impact the body, humans could not get pregnant in space. And even if we could, there is a whole lot of stuff we don't know about how fetal development and childbirth might unfold in different gravities. There's a huge amount of research about how human bodies are impacted by being in space. But almost all of the bodies that have been studied belong to men. And there's almost no research on how reproduction, gestation, and delivery might work in space. Just a warning, I'm about to talk about blood for a second. Blood in space is actually a huge problem. There are whole manuals for what surgery might look like in space because you have to figure out a way to contain the blood so it doesn't float around in little droplets and get everywhere. Delivering a baby often involves blood and all kinds of other fluids. And even if you figure that out, if you get pregnant and deliver without complications, you then have a baby in space. Here's science journalist Maggie Coerth-Baker from the episode where I get even deeper into this question. Well, I mean, I think you also have like a neonatal care issue too, right? Because if we're not planning well enough to have done really in-depth 
research and try to understand like what reproduction and pregnancy is going to be like in space, chances are we're not sending that first team to Mars with an OBGYN. (laughs) Would you even have an incubator? Would you even have things that somebody might need to assist a infant that has functional bodily differences that all of the stuff that we sent their parents to space with aren't prepared for? One thing that we do know is that if we wind up having a ton of space babies, there will be more girls than boys. There's some data basically that shows that astronauts are more likely to have female babies than male. Like if you've been to space and you come back and you have kids, um, the kids that you have after space are more likely to be female. Which means our future space colonies might wind up being mostly ladies, whether we like it or not. Then again, all these conversations assume that reproduction in space is going to be set up just like it is here on Earth, which mostly involves two humans having direct, intimate physical contact. But if we have the technology to get to Mars, we've probably figured out some other stuff, too. One thing that I noticed is that all of the conversations surrounding this, understandably, I guess, are very like heteronormative. This is Anika Harriet, a Ph.D. student at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, studying biochemistry and molecular biology. And so there wasn't much information or insight or really even um, thought into like IVF, for example, in space and things like that and what that might look like. Once again, surprise, surprise, ignoring women and assuming heteronormativity. I'm shocked. Other times on the show, I get a little bit more meta and talk to people about what certain visions of the future say about the people who imagine them. So one really common vision of the future in science fiction is one where everybody drinks like a slurry or gets their calories from pills. You know, the whole Soylent thing or food pills. But it's actually impossible to fit all the calories you need into a pill or even a couple of pills. And yet this idea persists. And I wanted to know why. Why do food pills keep popping up in these Western techie circles? I think a lot about efficiency with food pills, too, and just how in in the U.S., like everything's sort of wrapped up already. Right. And you only get the nice parts of meat, for instance, or like the really nice vegetables. Whereas in the rest of the world, you use everything. This is Soleil Ho. She's a food writer and the host of the podcast Racist Sandwich. It makes sense to me that a food pill would come from a culture where everything is already presented most efficiently and like most pristinely. Like, of course, you just unwrap it. And, you know, we've been trained from birth, essentially, like with chicken breast, you just unwrap it and then heat it up a little bit, and then you're done. On this episode, I also interviewed an expert on eating disorders about whether a food pill future would be good or bad for people who might have toxic relationships to food. I mean, Soylent is just slim fast marketed to men. And in all my research on food pills, I never saw anybody talking about what they might mean for the approximately 30 million Americans with eating disorders. You can tune in to the farm to tablet episode for more on that.
Not all the futures I talk about on the show are technological. And that's because the future isn't just shaped by devices and giant tech companies. It's also shaped by people and policies and culture. I've done an episode where gender is like hair color, something we kind of notice but don't really care that much about. I've got an episode about what would happen if we actually tried to ban plastic or what might lead us to decide that contact sports are no longer worth it. What happens if we make all drugs completely legal? What would it be like to know the exact date on which you were going to die? What happens if the 2020 census just fails? Here's Susan Lerner, the director of Common Cause New York, talking about that and about why the census is critically important, in particular for marginalized communities. The populations that historically have been undercounted are also the populations which historically are economically and socially disadvantaged. They're the populations the government tries to assist. And if you don't have an accurate sense of people who need help, then you can't have an effective program to help them. You are not putting in enough resources. You're not going to where the people who actually need the help can be found. Your efforts are misdirected and they're too short of the mark. And that happens way too frequently. And it shouldn't happen because we just haven't accurately counted who needs the help. That's the most basic thing. Where we have limited political will to help people, we certainly shouldn't be misapplying what little resources we have because we don't have an accurate count. Speaking of people who have been systematically erased by government counts, let's talk about tribal nations. A couple of years ago, when the California secessionists were making more noise than usual, I started wondering about the actual logistics of their plans. And in particular, I wanted to know what the Native folks in the state thought. Tribes in the U.S. have treaties with the national government, not with states. So if California did secede, it might wind up as an independent nation dotted with other independent nations inside of it. And those internal independent nations have a treaty with the country that California just broke away from, which could get weird. And it turns out none of the California secession movements had talked to the native people who live in the state. Here's Richard Monette, a professor of law at the University of Wisconsin and the director of the Great Lakes Indian Law Center. Yeah, it inevitably sets up the kind of conflict where one state becomes subordinate to another for a lot of reasons. Militarily, you know, economically, uh, a state could be strangled if I'm entirely surrounded by a state, right? Well, uh, you know, the, we could not allow cable uh, television to be uh, brought there, or we could stop the telephone poles and say you don't have electricity, or right? And well, that's the situation now with tribes and states, and that's precisely what states do. You're not going to get your liquor or your cigarettes. You're not going to get your satellite lines. You're not going to get your T1 lines for your computer, high-speed computer. You're not going to get that because it comes through a part of this state, and so we're going to tax it and do other things. So it's, it's possible to sort of politically, almost even culturally, but certainly economically, sort of strangle that, that interior one. And it's not just political plans that impact the future either. 
The future is shaped and experienced by individuals with internal lives and habits. So sometimes we consider those kinds of futures. Like, what if we couldn't lie to ourselves? What if one day we woke up and we had lost the ability to deceive our own brains? Maybe this would be good. Sometimes self-deception is a form of self-sabotage. But it would also mean that we'd lose imagination. On the episode, I talked to Jacqueline Gill, an assistant professor of paleoecology at the University of Maine. And she told me a story about growing up and her imaginary friends who would keep her safe at night if she ever had to leave her bed and use the bathroom. As adults, it's easy for us to forget that even though this kind of sounds cute and funny, the monsters and ghosts and imaginary friends that kids have can feel so real. It felt incredibly real to me. I mean, my heart would race, you know, when I knew the ghosts were in the room. And, uh, you know, even like running to the bathroom, like I was I was counting down in my head the seconds, you know, I was like running really quickly, um, you know, peeing as fast as I could and kind of getting back. And then it was like this a palpable relief of nothing can get me. I'm safe now. This kind of thinking, this magical way that kids can build fictional worlds to help them get through scary or strange situations, it doesn't really last. Jacqueline can't quite remember when exactly Mr. Ghost stopped showing up for her, but it probably happened slowly, like with all the rest of her imaginary friends. I remember, like, feeling this sense of guilt that a long time had gone by without my thinking about them, you know, and sort of kind of promising to myself I would never forget these friends. Um, I don't know why I'm getting a little bit emotional. (laughs) It seems really strange, but... Um, yeah, just the sense of like, oh, I forgot about my friends and, and then I'd feel badly about that for a bit. And then like, you know, longer and longer stretches would go by and, um, eventually you just sort of stop thinking about them altogether. When you're a kid, these can feel like real relationships. So losing them feels like a real loss. Today, Jacqueline doesn't think about Mr. Ghost all that much. Unless some nosy journalist like me shows up, I guess. But she does hope that Mr. Ghost is still available out there somehow, if she ever needs him. You know where I do think about it is if if I ever have a child of my own, sort of passing that on to them. Sorry, I don't know why I'm crying. This is so weird. I think he's, you know, like he's, he's out there. And, um, you know, I like to think that other little kids who might need that, could also have that in their lives. So often, conversations about the future are devoid of this kind of emotion and this kind of imagination. The point I'm trying to make with all of these clips, and I guess on Flash Forward in general, is that everything is futurism. Politics, science, culture, art, spawn con, it's all pushing us one way or another. And if we cede futurism to these same seven tech guys, we lose. They don't have our best interests at heart. So, what I'm hoping you get from this episode and from listening to Flash Forward is the power to take the future back and the tools to do so. So when you're pitched a future on Instagram, by a politician, by an advocacy organization, you'll know it when you see it. We all make the future happen, and the future should be for all of us. And when the same people are imagining the future over and over again, those futures tend to kind of suck. 
Let's imagine better ones. You can find Flash Forward wherever you get your podcasts. So wherever you are listening to this episode of CYG, you can definitely find Flash Forward as well. You can also reach us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those places at Flash Forward Pod. We are at Flash Forward Pod on pretty much everything. I'm Rose Eveleth, and you can find me on the internet at roseeveleth.com or again on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, Rose Eveleth. I am the only Rose Eveleth for better or for worse. Okay. I'll see you in the future. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf, where Sophie Carter-Khan does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. See you on the internet. Bye, boo!